Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. All over the world, people are taught never to talk about money, politics, sex, or religion in polite company. On 50 Fires, a podcast about money and meeting, host and financial conversationalist Carl Richards removes money from, from that list by having frank, funny, and often difficult conversations about money, the kind we were all told not to have. Joining us this morning to discuss his new podcast is Parkite Carl Richards. Carl, thanks for joining us. Yeah, cheers, Allison. Super fun to be here. Happy to have you, and yeah. I'm excited for this to be our New Year's Day show. Yeah, so fun. Very cool. Well, let's begin with your title, Financial Conversationalist. When did you garner this reputation, and how do you utilize this power? Yeah, it's really actually quite funny. I didn't know. My editor at the New York Times actually sent me an email last week saying, financial conversationalist. So somebody came up with that idea, but I, um, man, probably 15, 15 or 20 years ago, was super fascinated by this idea that we weren't supposed to talk about money. And I noticed myself actually doing it to my son. I mean, I remember he was in the backseat of the car. We were driving in trailside at the house, and we drove past a neighbor who had just bought a water ski boat. And my son said, oh, the so-and-so must be rich. You mean the Joneses? Yeah, the Joneses, <laughs> exactly. The Joneses must be rich. They just bought a boat. And I said, I said, oh, that's none of our business. And I remember, like, when the words came out of my mouth, I looked in the rearview mirror, saw my son looking confused, like, yeah. What? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it too. So that's when I was like, man, I've got to figure this out. Like who made this rule? Why is this a rule? And how do we have more conversations about money? I like it. I yeah. like it. So why is it difficult to talk about money? I think, I think it's because, I mean, there's all sorts of really crazy history about, you know, the, the, the issues of keeping people on the, um, the old like surf sort of mm -hmm. style stuff, right? Like we don't talk about the royals have money, we don't, all of that stuff. But I think it's more because if we're taught anything about money in school, which we're often not, but if we are, we're taught it's in the math department, mm -hmm. right? Two plus two equals four. Money is a calculator and spreadsheet issue. Then you go to touch it for the first time and it's like touching an electric fence that you didn't know was electric. Suddenly it's not in the math department. Like why is this fear or greed or worry or concern or dreams or hopes or excitement all wrapped up in this thing that's supposed to be math? So I think we're confused by like, wait, I just opened the credit card. Why are, Bill, why are we fighting suddenly? So I'm not sure we know what to make of it, right? But what we know is it's not math. Right. But it does encompass almost every other aspect of our lives. So it's yeah. important. We must talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially we just spent four years living in New Zealand and a year in London. And I can tell, like, especially in America, money, work and money seem to be the organizing principle. So, yeah, it's, it touches everything. And that's, uh, you know, we could talk about why that is. That's, that's a whole different topic. But, but, yeah, we have to figure out how to talk about it. And I think the other thing we do, too, is... We, we go to touch it. It's like an electric fence. So we, we, we develop coping mechanisms to talk around it, mm -hmm. right? Like instead of talking about it exactly, because every time we do that, it's a fight. Like we learn to talk about it. And I think there's all the like comparisons, keeping up with people, all of that stuff that play into it. Well, and then there's the external and internal conversations as well, which I'm sure yeah. you address within the conversations you have in the interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Chip and Joanna uh, Gaines 
of the blockbuster renovation show Fixer Upper are executive producers of your yeah. podcast. Yeah. Chip is even one of your first guests. Yeah. How did the conversation with them regarding this podcast first start? Yeah, so this is a, that's a fun story. Um, probably four years ago while we were living in New Zealand, I got an email from Dave Gesh. Dave Gesh is one of the writers for um, The Big Bang Theory. And he said, I didn't know anything. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know anything about the Big Bang Theory. I didn't realize it was such a big deal, like second to Seinfeld, I guess, in, in, in terms of grossing, you know, money making. So um, Dave sent an email saying, hey, I want to pr- create a show, a TV show about money and we'd like you involved. And I was like, well, that's cute, <laughs> but well, I don't know any, like I'm not an actor. He said, well, you talk about money in a way that nobody else does. So we'd like you involved. So we started exploring concepts way back then and came up with an idea for a TV show. We started to pitch that. And somewhere along the pitching process, the team, at, somebody at Magnolia, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, the, pr- the production company that produces their show, uh, heard the pitch. And so they got a hold of it and said, hey, we would love to do that. Can we start as a podcast first? Can we start our audio division with it? So that's how that happened. So I'm going to jump to a question that I had. It was actually my last question, but will this series exceed 50 conversations because it's called 50 <laughs> fires? So yeah. it's, the point of it is almost to exceed those 50 conversations because it's leading to something larger. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking 50 conversations a year. Okay. Right, right. So we'll do one a week, take a week or two off and 50 conversations a year, which really was that in the second episode, when we recorded the second episode, I was talking with a friend, Bryce Roberts, who's a, a, lives in Utah, lives in Salt Lake, has a house up here. And he, we were talking about our remodel in the backyard and I was talking about how we wanted to build this fire pit and have, and I said, I want to have 50 fire, 50 conversations a year around the fire. And he was somebody on the production team was like, that's what we should name the podcast. So it was, it was meant to point to this idea of having, I'm not talking about budgeting or investing or insurance. We're talking about the things that really actually matter. And so it's meant to point to this idea of like a conversation with a friend around a fire, a conversation in a, in your favorite coffee shop, that kind of conversation. And so 50 conversations that matter. Who are you having these conversations with? Who are your guests? Yeah, so so it's been really, really fun. And I think part of this has to do with Magnolia or Chip and Joanna Gaines, like their reach a bit and some of the folks on the production team, Dave, Gesh, and Rebecca, who help with uh, with producing it. So it's been, um, we had Lucas Nelson, so Willie's son when he was here at the, the Songwriters Conference. Um, you know, Chip was a blast. Uh, super fun. Some of the episodes that haven't come out, but will have by the time we, we air this. Um, Gina Yashiri, who's a, a Nigerian-born London comic and now actor, actress. Um, Manit Chauhan, who was one of the judges at um, Chopped. So celebrity chef, judge at Chopped. Oh, Dean Norris. So Hank on Breaking Bad. Super fun. Matt Higgins, who's one of the sharks in Shark Tank. And then we've got a whole list of like folks I'm really excited about for next year. Many of the people that you're interviewing are successful. Yeah. And this is, a, you know, a discussion about money. It's a conversation about money. Is this something that anyone can relate to? Yeah, I mean, that's been, it's been an ongoing debate about who to have these conversations with. Um, I am really focused on finding people who are good at having conversations and that has led to some folks and people have said that like, look, everybody's already successful. I think understanding how people navigate money 
um, and hearing the stories. Because what you hear from people who, what you think about people who've been successful is like it was always this way mm-hmm. or it was mm-hmm. this grand plan. And I love backing up to hear these early stories of struggle. And I think that perspective is valuable for all of us. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah I think, I think, it, I, I don't know. You've listened to a few. Are they relatable? They're relatable. You okay. always, you always wonder, and again, for the audience, you know, a lot of times when you look at a podcast and you start to look at like, well, who did they interview? Who do I want to hear from? You know, is there, you know, I, I follow up with that question because of, you know, you look at these people's names and you're like, well, they don't have financial issues. Well, they yeah. don't have financial yeah. concerns, but that's not necessarily what you're talking about. You're talking about their mindsets. Yeah. And, and it's super interesting. I mean, when we first started the TV idea, I was in one of the writer's room conversations. I said something about the wizards of enough. I was like, look, I want to go find it. And Dave was like, what wizards? So it was really interesting when we started looking for the wizards of enough. And this was all over the world thinking about people who had, who had figured out how to have enough. It was super interesting. We had a harder time finding people with a lot of money that had figured out how to have enough than people who had almost nothing. So I think that, that struggle and listen, Park City is a place where it's, you know, we all get blamed with this like first world problem thing, which I really dislike how dismissive that is, but we're all trying to sort this out. Like, what does it mean to be in a position where you might be called privileged? What does it mean to sort out you know, the challenges of loneliness when you've got everything you thought you would. What does it mean to be 55 and be like, I did all, I conquered out there, right? And now I don't know what it means to have an interior life. Mm. How, how do I have friends? Like all of those things. I have that conversation more than any other conversation in Park City, you know? It's the external boxes are checked. Yeah, like, so, oh, everything should be great. Why do I feel so bad? Mm-hmm. And that brings me to kind of that, question that you ask in each episode, you invite guests to answer, what does money mean to you? Yeah. And I, I'm a, I love words. And I look at those six words. How did you distill what you wanted to find out from the, how did you distill that that's the one question you continuously ask? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for a very long time. And so there's been a whole bunch of variations and I practice, like I, I I like literally test questions and I'll change one or two words. And that is a, a, a recent version of a question I've been asking a long time, which is like, why, why does money matter to you? Or what matters about money to you? Or what's important about money to you? Those are different versions that I've used. And I loved inserting meaning like, cause we're really trying to make, what I'm actually curious, I don't really care, Allison. I don't really care about money. Like what I care about is humans and meaning. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be, at least in the world we live in, it happens to be one of the quickest, I think if it's a righteous trick, it's like one of the quickest access, access points to what actually matters to you is how do you think about your use of capital? That's, it's, it's the, um, speechless. I know, right? It's the, you know, put your money where your mouth is. You know, it's, it's talking with your dollar. It's all of that kind of stuff, but yeah. magnified in such a way to say, no, every moment in which you handle money, how do, what is your core belief behind it? Yeah, I think it's the way we express values. And so I think like there's this old saying that the checkbook and the calendar never lie. 
So like I, I, I kind of care what you tell me is important to you, but I care a lot, like show me your checkbook and calendar and I'll tell you what's important to you. So that's, I, like, I think of it as like, how do you use your capital time, money, energy, and attention? And does that line up with what you say is important to you? And the answer is like sometimes, and then the other times the answer is almost never. Like I'll tell you time with my family, mainly outside is what's important to me geez, that was interesting. You spent two hours on ESPN on Sunday. You know, like, it, does that match? Oh, well, that, let's explore that. Like, let's not run from it. So, yeah, I think that's what we're trying to get at here is like, look, how do you use capital in a way that's aligned with what's actually important to you? And if it's not, I really think that's like the fundamental tension we've all got to solve. It's like if you're not using it in an authentic way, and all of that's exploratory, and all of it's a process, and we shouldn't feel shame and blame around it. We should just notice it and say, look, how could I be a little better about that? And the best way that I find that I learn is listening to others and how have yeah. they hacked their process, how yeah. they hacked their kind of mind faults yeah. and what have they thought. I may never use the same philosophy, but sometimes it's just that one little thing they say yeah. that's enough of a trigger to make me think differently. Yeah, I, I agree. Dean Norris, so Hank on Breaking Bad, he, his episode's not out, but it's coming out soon. He said that... Um, and I heard something similar from Lucas Nelson. A lot of these people have been creative so far. So a lot of the sort of creative mindset. But Dean said, when I said, what does money mean to you? He said, it's really simple. He's like, it means how many months can I go without having to take a gig? Right. And early on, he was like, that was 0.5 of a month. He's like, I still do the math today. Like, I'll take the total amount of money. Yep. I'll divide it by my monthly spend. That means how many months can I go without a gig, right? And he's like, that number's now pretty big. Yep. But early on, as a and Lucas Nelson said something similar. Like, I really, from the, he's like, I saw from my dad and people like Neil Young and Bob Dylan. And who else did he mention? It was dad, Neil Young, and Bob Dylan. He's like, I learned early on that writing really good songs is like waiting for the rain to come. You can't make it rain. And if you're in a position where the rain's not coming and you have to produce something, he, he actually said something like, can you imagine going to Neil Young and saying, hey, would you just write something like, um, would you just write something like Taylor Swift? Because hmm. it sales, sells these days. He's like, I wouldn't even want to be in the same state as the answer you'd get. So, but I wanted to set myself up so I was in a position to serve because that's what v was valuable to me, right? Chip, Chip Gaines said that, what was valuable to him was money was a tool for impact. Money was a tool to help others. So as soon as he had enough to help others, he's like, well, I'm going to you. It's a tool. It's meant to be used, right? So I think those little coming up with some little statement about like, why is, what does money mean to you written down on a note card somewhere can solve a lot of our like, should I invest in this? Should I spend this way? Should I buy this? Well, is it aligned with that? Well, it, it becomes a really helpful frame. I love that. I want to talk a little bit about the, the background of making a podcast. You yeah. referenced a couple of times the writer's room, and many people would say, but this is a podcast. You're yeah. talking, and it's a conversation. What are you writing? Yeah, so it, that's one of my favorite parts. I've always wanted to do that, like getting in with a group of very – this is this, this one of the – the thing I love the most about this project – is the creative team around it. And so I spend time with Chris, our producer, and Temple Williams, who's on the Blind Nil is the production company of Chip, Chip, Chip and Joanna's um, production company, and Dave and Rebecca, 
talking about like what are the unique aspects of this person's life? What are the, what are their backgrounds? What do we know about what they've said publicly? Um, I like to understand all that. It's really interesting going into a conversation with somebody. Um, you know, I don't. I love to know all of that and hear all of that, and then I really throw it all away because what's so unique. It's like, I'm just concerned about your experience with money. And I'm only using those early questions. Like what's your earliest memory? What was it like growing up? There's some like standard early. I'm only using those early questions to find the crunchy bit is what I call it. Like the piece where there's emotional resonance or patina, because then as soon as you say something like, oh yeah, I was just so like growing up with money. My mom always told me not to be so spoiled. Like, wow, can we dive? I mean, one of the early stories was um, that I asked, how did you know what socioeconomic class, what socioeconomic class were you at when you were 12? That seems to be like a really 12 to 14, right? Like what, what class were you, Allison? Do you remember? I would say I was probably low middle class. How did you know that? Right. How did you know that? Like what was the story or an experience that you can remember? Did I know that? <clears throat> I guess my question is, did I know that then or do I know that now? I don't think I knew that then. Did you I have don't it? think I had any idea because we had a lot of, um, growing up, we had a lot of family support yeah. uh, financially. And yeah. so I had, I, I didn't did, have How did pay. you know that you had family support? Like how did, like what happened? I know I'm trying to think through this. Well, I knew my grandparents definitely helped out with our schooling. Yeah. And... My mom made our clothes. So I had a lot of like little moments in those moments, you know, yeah. during that time that I knew. Yeah. So like pieces. I would want to, I mean, if we had time, yeah. and, and like this is just <laughs> what I, I do all yes. the time. Like right. I find myself on a plane doing this, right? Like it's just what, has, but, but one of my guests said, um, yeah, I, I was one of the poorer kids at school. I was like, how did you know that? And he said, well, I only had one pair of jeans and one day I was hanging out with, I had this girl that I really liked and she was from, she was from a, she was one of the rich kids at school. And one day, um, I got grass stains on my jeans and I forgot and I came the next day and there was grass stains on my jeans. And she said to me, well, you only have one pair of jeans. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can you imagine? Like, and now what's so interesting is to now say, geez, what do you make of that now? Right. Like if you were to go back and talk to what would you tell that person now? So to try to unpack all of that stuff, because there's almost always a moment like Manit Chauhan talked about growing up in India and how she never wanted for anything. I was so fascinated by that because we all seem to want. And she was like, well, nobody else in the town, the little town I grew up in, we were all the same. And there was no Instagram to teach us that we wanted that was fascinating. And when she first got like a small can of Coke, they visited some other country and she brought back the can of Coke because you couldn't get it. And she's like, I never opened it. I kept it on the shelf because it represented this idea of something I could get from a, that was planting the seeds to the idea of like, I'm going to go away to culinary school. I'm going to be a chef. super fascinating to break all that stuff down. So it sounds like you have a spectacular lineup of guests yeah. and the show is called 50 fires. Carl, how can everyone find this show? Yeah. Just anywhere where you get your podcast. So yeah. 50 fires on Spotify and, uh, Apple podcasts, anywhere you, where you get your podcast. I so appreciate the time that you spent with us this morning. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on mountain money. Yeah. So fun, Allison. Thank you. 
With all the information that we have at our fingertips, people still misdiagnose illnesses, create educational programs that don't help students, sink millions into business plans that never get off the ground, and overlook simple details that cost time, energy, and lives. We've been taught to find answers to problems, not to question the problem itself, says author and innovation consultant Roger Firestein. His new book, Solve the Real Problem, is designed to help illuminate the problem-solving mindset people are currently using to introduce other approaches that might be helpful and to offer strategies for consciously changing the way we think about problems. This allows readers to choose the approach that best suits the current challenge. Joining us to discuss the concept of creative problem-solving is Roger Firestein. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. We've devoted, you've devoted your professional life to sort of teaching this concept of creative problem solving. What's the definition of it and how did you become interested in this area? Well, I originally began my work in uh, Colorado and I was a guitar teacher and I was trying to get my students to get more creative. And um, I found a place in Buffalo, New York that uh, really focuses on the study of creativity and innovation. I came out here in the late 70s and, and devoted my life to it. Creative problem solving is a simple process to help, a simple, repeatable process to help you to redefine problems more effectively, generate lots of ideas for solving those problems, and then put those ideas into action. And we're not only looking at problems, we're looking at opportunities, at goals. And in many cases, what creative problem solving gives you is a, is a different language for approaching problems and a whole different approach. I, I look at it as a life-affirming skill. With regards to solving problems, I know a lot of times we tend to solve symptoms and not the problem itself, but can you talk a bit about the first problem fallacy? Oh, I'd love to talk about the first problem fallacy. Well, that is actually based on what's called the first instinct fallacy. Now, remember when you were uh, taking tests in school and you had these multiple choice tests and you got down to the point where like you weren't sure is it A or B or A or mm -hmm. C. What was the advice they gave you? What did they tell you to do? Go with your gut instinct? Get rid of the one that's obviously wrong. Oh, see, I honestly didn't listen. <laughs> Go with your gut instinct. That's what I got. Go with your gut instinct. As a matter of fact, in the Barron's uh, 2000 edition of How to Prepare for the Graduate Record Exam, they said, go with your gut instinct. That's absolutely false. And that's known as the first instinct fallacy. Yeah. And from 1928 to 1984, 33 studies have disproved that. Now, the reason why we go with the first instinct is because it feels worse to change a correct answer to an incorrect answer. Because when we do that, we remember that, oh my God, I had the correct answer. I changed it to the correct, the incorrect answer. That's why we stick with the first instinct. So um, it's sort of like, you know, when you're at the grocery store, you know, you guys get in the grocery store line, right? And the line is moving along, it's moving along, it's moving along. And you're looking at the line going, oh, I'm going to go to the other line. I'm going to go to the other line. You go to the other line, and what do you do? It doesn't move. It doesn't move. The other one takes off. Yeah. And so he said, if only I had, if only I had. Well, that's the idea behind the first instinct fallacy. What we first think is the answer really is the answer when it isn't. Now, that's that. when we were looking at that, we found that um, that led to what I now refer to as the first problem fallacy. What we first think is the problem is really not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem or what the boss thinks is a problem. And that's why we encourage people, why this book really talks about how you can find the real problem. And we have a number of strategies for doing that. And the first thing to do is to not accept your, what your first initial uh, uh, definition of the problem as a real problem. So don't accept your first impression of the problem as a real problem. So let's, let, let's dumb this down just a second. Yeah. yeah. Let's give us a good example of how I would come into a situation and I would get the problem wrong. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, let me give you an example of, of uh, heart attacks. You know what, do you know what causes a heart attack? Uh, uh, normally, it is a constriction of an artery, so something like, and typically yeah. it's the lower, lo, the lad, the lower an anterior descending artery to the heart. Yeah, and what surgeons thought was plaque caused it, okay? So in the early 80s, if you uh, had a heart condition, they said rest, um, you know, don't, don't exert yourself because they thought plaque would cause the artery. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that at all. As a matter of fact, only plaque was only responsible for part of that. It was actually a blood clot that caused the heart attack. What happened? The plaque would build up, it would burst. Your body's natural reaction to a wound is to clot it. And so the blood clot actually caused the heart attack. That's why you have stents, because stents go right through the blood clot. So that's one example of they were looking at the wrong issue, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, so the, the thing is to get all the details out of that. And so when you look at all the details, you say, hey, well, it wasn't this at all, it was this over here. So that's one example. You want another one? Sure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> We're on a roll. We're on a roll. Serious as a heart attack. Yeah, <laughs> yes. See, well, let's try this one. How about a $14 trillion industry? I like How about that. this one? Ooh. Okay, let's go with that one. So for in the 1950s, the shipping industry was dying, all right? Um, and what happened, it took longer and longer to load up freight, and the, the ships were in port longer than when they were at sea, all right? And so they brought in the shipping experts. They say, what do we need to do? Well, let's reduce the crew size. Let's build faster ships. You know what happened? It got worse, right? So the problem is, is that the goods were loading up and staying at the dock and they weren't getting on the ship fast enough. Longshoremen. So they would load barrels and crates and sacks and stuff on these ships in an odd shape, right? Because uh, they sure. packed them in. That was until a truck driver, a truck driver, now he didn't have anything to do with the shipping industry, named Malcolm McLean said, hey, I don't think the problem is with the ships here. I think it's with loading and stowing the ships. Malcolm McClay invented the container ship, mm. and he invented the whole, this whole system that goes along with that. So now, goods are, 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 are stowed, ready to go, before the ship actually comes into the dock, unload, load, they're on their way. So they're not spending all that time loading on the dock anymore. The freight is already preloaded. Is that cool? I think those were two great examples in that heart attack example in the book. I'm so glad you mentioned it, because that was kind of mind-blowing to me, of just talking mm -hmm. about how what's you know how to define the problem and so i want to talk about the problem definition can yeah. you describe the problem definition and discuss the research study results found when subjects just took five additional minutes to redefine a problem i love you guys i would be happy to right so um oftentimes people will say to me like i don't have time to figure out what the problem is i gotta get right to work okay i gotta get stuff done well, in a research study, they divided the group into two groups. They said to one group, they said, here's a problem to solve, go to work, solve it, right? To the other group, they said, here's a problem to solve, take as much time as you like figuring out what the problem is, and then generate some solutions for solving it. When they analyzed the results, they found that the group that spent time defining what the problem was came up with better, more original, more usable solutions. Now, my question in this study was, how much time did it take for those folks to redefine the problem? In actuality, they took between five to six minutes to redefine the problem. That's it. So my question is, can you afford to spend five minutes to find the real problem? And the other question is, can you afford not to? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just pause, yeah. So you talk about this concept of four problem-solving mindsets. Yeah. Can, can you sort of explain what they are, and are they actually mutually exclusive? 
They're not mutually exclusive, they overlap. And so when we did solve the real problem, what I did was I interviewed people from business, education, agriculture, uh, medicine, um, real life, uh, I interviewed mediators, and I found that their approach that they use settled into four mindsets. The first mindset was to challenge your assumptions. What you think is a problem is usually not the problem. The next mindset was get an outside perspective. And an example of that is the shipping industry. Malcolm McLean wasn't a ship person, he was a truck driver. Third one, see the big picture, look beyond where you think the problem is, and then look for all the details. So the mindsets are challenge your assumptions, get an outside perspective, see the big picture, look for all the details. And so by applying those consciously, you can say, hey, I'm getting too close to this, I need to step back. Hey, I need to get an outside perspective. Let me talk to some people that aren't in this business. Maybe they can give me some new ideas. And that's really the essence of creativity is looking outside of the area that you're working on. I think a lot of times when we're approached with what we'll call a problem, we think there's just one problem, but in, oftentimes that's not the case. How do you know when you've identified all the problems? Yeah, well, here's something to keep in mind. A friend of mine says, the problem you see is the problem you solve. The problem you see is the problem you solve. So if you want to solve the real problem, then you need to see lots of problems. And that's why we do a thing called creative questioning. Now, I'm sure you guys are familiar with brainstorming ideas. You get together in a group, you generate a whole bunch of ideas for solving a problem. What folks are not familiar with is brainstorming problems or brainstorming creative questions. Now, we have a way that we talk about problems and we phrase them like a question and we call them creative questions. And they begin with words like how to or how might or in what ways might. And those phrases at the beginning open your mind up to thinking about options. For example, there's a big difference between saying we don't have enough money as opposed to how to reduce the cost or how to raise the money. Those two questions open your mind up to the possibility of ideas out there. That first statement blocks your thinking completely. So the problem you see is the problem you solve. If you want to solve the right problem, look for lots of them and use creative questions. Yeah, let, let's do a couple more examples because yeah, I think those yeah. are re it's really helpful to take the sort of conceptual stuff that we're talking about and, and talking about how to apply it. So can you yeah. give us another example of, 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 of what we're talking about here, which is are we, you know, how do we define the problem? Yeah, and so let's go back to our, our four mindsets. Challenging assumptions, get an outside perspective, see the big picture, look for all the details. I'm going to go to see the big picture next because, and here's another medical example. A fellow came, uh, named Sam comes in to me to see a doctor, okay? He's having heart problems, okay? He's been treated for angina, all right? The doctor says, hey, look, you know, I'm going to put you in the hospital. Sam goes, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go in the hospital. So the doctor says, he says, well, look, I'm going to increase your medication. I want to see you back here in two days, all right? Otherwise, I'm putting you in the hospital. So Sam comes back in two days. His condition hasn't changed. It's worse. So my friend, whose name is Dr. Gatewood, said, well, let's take a look, Sam, at what's going on in your life. What's happening in your life? And, and, and Sam and his wife were caregivers for their daughter who was bipolar. And so the daughter had come to live with them. And when the daughter, uh, the daughter had recently had some, a number of major incidences. She was flaring up. She was having issues. And Sam's heart issues came up. So my friend, Dr. Gatewood, he said, well, let's do this. Let's get some help for your daughter, and then let's see what happens with your heart condition. They get some help for the daughter. Her episodes decrease significantly. Sam's heart problem goes away. 
So it's looking beyond what we think is the original problem, Sam's Harper, but and looking at the whole environment that was going on out there. So it wasn't necessarily Sam, it was how he's reacting to his environment. One of the things I think when we look at a problem is we assume that it's a bad thing. <laughs> is that always the case? No, no, not at all. A problem is just a gap from where you are to where you want to be. And the reason why we have problems in our lives, solving problems creates growth. And we grow mentally, intellectually when we solve problems. We're solving problems all the time. From the time when we're children, when we're trying to solve the problem of getting from here to there, uh, for the time when we're trying to, to you know, uh, provide for our families, for the time when we're trying to make a dollar stretch longer, for the time when we're trying to create a new business. Problems are not a bad thing. There's they're a gap from where we are to where we want to be. And problems show us what we want to create. I'm, I'm, the, the pause there is, is digesting what you just said. <laughs> problems show us what we want to create. Yes. So I guess what you're saying is that as we go through life, um, problems are really how we make progress on anything. In other words, yes. in order to advance, in order to advance, it's almost like I need to have something in front of me to deal with mm -hmm. in order to make progress in any sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of the process asks us to, to, we're talking about generating creative questions. And, the, mm -hmm. and, and so let's talk a little more about, about how we take these problems slash opportunities and generate creative questions in order to have a more sophisticated approach to, to solving them. Great. Excellent. Well, so um, what I'd recommend is try this exercise. Next time you have a problem that confronts you, just sit down, take a sheet of paper, don't judge those creative questions, and just generate 10 of them. How to, how might, how to, how might. Then look at those 10 or 15 creative questions and, and then find the one that best describes the problem that you want to solve. And oftentimes, they'll just kind of come off the page at you. They'll say, hey, that's it. It wasn't that at all. That's it. Once you've chosen that creative question, then and only then generate some ideas for solving it. And when you generate those ideas, don't judge those ideas. We call it deferring judgment. Hold off your judgment on those ideas until you come up with a number of ideas to choose from, then select those ideas. So generate lots of creative questions, starting with how to or how might, don't judge them. Select the creative question that really nails what you want to work on, then generate ideas for solving it. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm still on the, the pause from Roger's last question about <laughs> the fact that... You guys are wonderful. Thank the, you, you know that a, a problem's not a bad thing. And again, a problem is, is, as you said, a difference from where you are to where you want to go. Mm -hmm. And so I think I always sit there and say, like, I don't have any problems in my life, but <laughs> I have a lot of places I want to go. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so I, I've been getting, um, wrapping my head around that um, since, you know, the last minute. How, how when I identify this opportunity, now that I'm calling it, you mm -hmm. know, how can I identify all the details surrounding this? How do I know that I've turned over every stone? Because I think a lot of times I get stuck in that, um, you know, a procrastination because I overanalyze. Right. right, right. Well, there's a couple of things. First off, when you have, let's take a look at the whole problem thing. So, you know, every business, every organization has a goal or a vision, something you want to accomplish. And as soon as you put that out there, all of a sudden, things get in the way of what you want to accomplish. And those can be called problems, okay? So, you know, then phrase them like a creative question, generate some ideas for solving it, and that moves you closer to getting to what you want to accomplish. But as far as getting all the details out, you can just ask yourself a few questions. Hey, what's a, here's three questions to ask as far as when you want to accomplish a goal. 
What's a brief background? What do I know? What have I already thought of or tried? And what might my ideal goal be for solving this problem? What's a brief background? What have I already thought of or tried? What might my ideal goal be? And when you list that ideal goal for the problem that you want to solve, that moves your brain to go right after that ideal goal. And oftentimes you can turn that ideal goal into a creative question and then generate ideas for solving it. So you'll get the data out, then you'll be able to create that entree to create those creative questions. You, you know, that last answer, and indeed much of the conversation in this book, is really designed to help us be able to sit down and have a rigorous analytical structure mm -hmm. to try to confront the problems in our lives. Let's talk about, do, do, do you think that reading the book will really help listeners become more creative? And you, you have a concept called the air is not right that I really want to explore <laughs> oh. a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, so the air is not right. So the book will definitely help you to be more creative. And when we did the book, the main thing that we focused on is we focused on one technique, one technique, and that was coming up with creative questions. And so, but, so in many cases, um, and let's talk about making the air right. I've been in the creativity business for 45 plus years, and I haven't seen a lot of success in management systems that have that have mandated creativity. Um, <laughs> you know, and so you can have people follow company procedures. You can train them in creative problem solving. You can create these beautiful idea labs and innovation labs that nobody comes to. Um, but and that's with the best intentions, all right? But the air was not right. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, if you want a bee to make honey, you can put, put out the best bee boxes you can find. You can find the most healthy bees. You can bring in a healthy queen. You can set them up in the best time of the year as possible. But you can't make the bees make honey, right? And there's a wonderful quote um, from, um, from Lewis Thomas. And so he's, he's, he, talks about, um, he talks about scientific discovery. Uh, scientific discovery can't be prearranged in any precise way. The minds cannot be lined up in tidy rows and given instructions from printed sheets. You cannot get it done by instructing each mind to make this or that piece for central committees to fit with the pieces made by the other instructed minds. It does not work this way. What it needs is to be made, is it, what it needs is for the air to be made right. So what we're talking about making the air right in an organization is creating a culture where people are willing to give ideas. People are having their ideas supported. Right? And one of the key things to make the air right is what we talk about in this book is to change your whole perspective about problems and to create creative questions about them. So one way to make the air right is to create creative questions. And so, um, you know, as, so as, as, uh, as I think we might be wrapping up here, I've got, I've got uh, four recommendations that you can use to make the air right. <laughs> Go for it. Okay. <laughs> so the first one, and we're going to talk about creative questions. To make the air right, first pause. Don't accept your first impression of the problem as the real problem. We talked about that earlier, okay? Ask. Ask creative questions. Take a few minutes to generate 10 creative questions or so. Choose the creative question that best defines your problem, and then start to generate ideas to solve that problem. So pause, ask, choose and then generate ideas to solve the problem. We have truly enjoyed the conversation with you this morning as you so took us I. from <laughs> guitar instructor to creative problem solving expert. We've been speaking with Roger Firestein. He has written the book, Solve the Real Problem. Roger, thank you for joining us on Mountain Money this morning. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
Pairing the thrill of a sleigh ride in the crisp mountain air with a remarkable culinary journey steeped in Nordic tradition, the beloved Viking yurt experience returns this winter under the new ownership of the Merrill family. Brian, Dina Merrill, along with their son Dylan, will oversee operations of the nightly sleigh rides and six-course gourmet dining experiences housed in the elevated yurt located mid-mountain at Park City Mountain Resort beginning this December. Brian, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So how long has the Viking Yurt been operating? And you can you walk us through that experience that a guest has when they, they join? Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it was started, I believe, in 1999 by Joy and Geyer Veek, local Park City residents. And at first it was at uh, the canyons and then moved to Park City. And then we purchased it from them this past year. But... Um, the experience is that people meet us at the base of the resort. We meet in the lobby of the Legacy Lodge right there at the base. We load them onto a, a big sleigh that's pulled by a snowcat and haul them up the mountain up to the yurt, which sits at the top of the Crescent Express lift. And, and then once it's 20, 25 minutes at most to, to get up there on the sleigh. And then once they're there, they, they come in and they spend the evening up there having a six course dinner and then pull them back down at the other night we have live piano music the whole time and uh very personal intimate experience only 40 people per night that's the maximum and uh which makes it easy for us unlike a regular restaurant we're not having to turn over tables or anything we can just people can just go up and disconnect for the evening it's really nice and that I don't know if you want to hear about the menu, yeah, the six that was, courses, that was, that was but my first question. Yeah, we, uh, we start out with a hot uh, spiced berry cider drink called Glog. And, and so that's waiting for them right when they show up at sitting on their plates. They can sit down and start drinking it. And if they choose to, they can have a little addition to their Glog. And, and, uh, and we have uh, a salad course. We have... Um, Oh, uh, lobster salmon bisque, of course. I think I got those out of order. And, uh, and then we have a palate cleanser where, where they eat, uh, they are served a sorbet that is served in rocks that actually come from Norway and they've been hollowed out. And, uh, and so after the palate cleanser, we have the main dish and then we have a cheese course and then the dessert course after that so and we've tried to a, a lot of the stuff is sourced locally and so that's that's you know one of the objectives we've had is to try to support as many other local businesses as we can in terms of you know everything from the cheese to the desserts the the ice the sorbet and the ice cream and it's Makes sense. Is, is the menu prefixed? In other words, are, are there any options for people who have particular food preferences or, or dietary restrictions? Yeah, most of the people eat what we call our signature menu. And so the main uh, entree is a braised short, you know, a short rib. Short rib. Um, but for people who don't eat beef, we have a salmon option. We have a chicken option. And then for uh, people who don't eat animal protein, we have a, a really great vegetarian option. And um, and so, yeah, you can make alternate choices. Most people don't, but you can. So listening to these ingredients and visualizing all the wonderful foods that you have to do, I have this, like, practical question. Um, like, how do you get all that food up there? I mean, there's no road. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering how you get make that work. Well, that, yeah, that's a great question. 
Our food is delivered to the same warehouse where they deliver the food for Park City Mountain Resort on Munchkin Road, the Munchkin Warehouse, they call it. And then their crews, they've dedicated space for us there and uh, in their freezer and their cooler and floor space. Their crew loads our stuff up into containers and they drive it up to the King Shop up on the mountain and then a snowcat takes it up to Mid Mountain Lodge. And we also have dedicated space there they've given us where we can store our food, but their crew hauls it up there for us and, and you know, puts it, the, puts it you know, away to some extent and then our crew goes up and, you know, does it more thoroughly. And then, uh, and that's where we prepare most of the food too, is at Mid Mountain Lodge. And at some point, the chef loads it all into a sled pulled behind a snowmobile and drives it over to the yurt. Now, at the year, we also have a nice commercial stove. We have facilities there to, to finish things, and then it gets plated up there and everything. But, but you know, it's quite the, a process. It's quite a process, yeah. The logistics are, are quite something. And I, I'll, I'll say, Vail Resorts is so supportive. I mean, the, their crews just really take care of us. Everything from the Munchkin Warehouse to the Mid Mountain Lodge and it's, it's been fantastic. Sounds like quite a synchronization in that relationship. Uh, when did you come to understand that the Viking Yurt was for sale, and what types of discussions did your family have to know that this was the right business for you? Yeah. Well, we, we started serious discussions with the Vicks about this time last year. Um, so it's all, all came together fairly quickly after mm-hmm. that. I had been aware that they were interested before that, but... Um, you know, the timing wasn't right. And, uh, but then when we realized they were serious and we got serious, our son had worked there for a number of years and we had this already had a relationship with them because one year they reached out to me. We are in the whitewater rafting business. Also, they reached out to me and said, Hey, would you advertise our winter job to your summer employees? Mm -hmm. And so for many years, our, our river guides, many of our river guides worked, also worked at the yurt. So we had this relationship. We'd been up there a few times and as guests of the Veeks. And, and um, so when we knew a lot about the business to begin with, but probably our biggest calculation was it seemed just like what we already knew how to do. Mm-hmm. Provide a really great experience with really great food. I've often described us as a giant floating restaurant in our rafting business. You know, we know how to do, prepare really nice food in, in uh, challenging locations. And, and uh, to me, it seemed like, well, this is great. We'll just get the same nice campsite every night. So. There you go. <laughs> you know, for so many operators of, of restaurants and other attractions here in Park City, staffing is obviously a huge challenge. And it sounds as though you came into this with a bit of an advantage because you had already been employing a number of the staff. Did, do you have a significant number that have, have stayed on with you that were previously in your business, rafting business or at the yurt? Yes, and both, both those who have already worked, had already worked for us and those who had not but were key employees to the yurt stayed on. We, we were really fortunate in that, and they are fantastic people, and we're hoping we can keep them around some more because I always joke, I probably know the least about the year of anybody. <laughs> you know, my son knows everything else, and, and there's so many people who are just so good at their jobs and, and make the magic happen, and we were really fortunate for that. A lot of times when, you know, a new business owner comes in, they know of a lot of changes they'd like to make immediately. How are you approaching your desire to make changes 
while also letting the business operate and kind of understand yeah. that too. Yeah, we're so like with any new thing you buy, you want to put your own spin on it. We've limited that to cosmetics. <laughs> you know, you buy a new house, it's perfectly beautiful, but you want to go in and redecorate, you know. And, we, and so we did some redecorating on the inside. When I say we, I mean my wife, and because I don't have an eye for that, and, uh, and it, it looks beautiful. But the, the core parts, you know, the logistics, the, the menu, we have left alone, and, and we are, we're learning, you know. Okay. Well, before we go, real quickly, uh, can you give us the price point and where, where on the website people can go to learn more? Yeah, so the website is vikingyurt.com. And um, the price point, the, the base price per night is $215. Um, we, we include, a, we charge the gratuity up front. Mm -hmm. And then with local taxes, it comes out to right around $280 per person per night. And, and so you gave us the website, you gave us the price point, and I think at this point, all listeners have to do is go online to be able to find out some more. Brian Merrill, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. We've enjoyed learning more about the new owners of the Viking Year. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen. And we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars.